Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina who was accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a myriad of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. Before we start this episode, a quick word about another Crime Story Media production. October 2014. Was David Martinez responsible for killing Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond? That's at the heart of Night Raid, a new podcast from Crime Story Media. Subscribe or follow wherever you get this podcast. In our last episode, we began our review of the testimony of Colleton County Sheriff's Captain Jason Chapman the senior officer who responded to the scene of the Murdoch murders. In this installment, we continue that examination. That's all coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It is late afternoon on January 26th, 2023, the second day of the Alex Murdoch murder trial. South Carolina Assistant Deputy Attorney General David Fernandez continues his direct examination of Colleton County Sheriff's Captain Jason Chapman. Again, Chapman is a stocky man sporting short brown hair with bangs hanging on his forehead and a full beard with flecks of gray. He wears a dark blue sheriff's dress uniform with a blue tie and his service ribbons, badge, and collar insignia on full display. In episode 8 of this season, we heard the 911 call that Alex Murdoch made, alerting the Colleton County Sheriff's Office to the homicides. The prosecutor's next line of questions relates to that 911 call. I'm going to ask you about something you do when you're arriving on a scene, particularly if it's a homicide. Do you have a practice of having a dispatch send you the 911 call? Yes, we do. Why would you do that? We get a lot of information from 911 calls, more so than uh, the average person, I think, would believe. Over the years, we've had several cases where had we not gone back and looked at that initial 911 call, we would have missed some very important information or information that could have cleared up some unknowns, those points of investigation you talked about a much sooner. In our investigator process, that's now one of the things that we try to do relatively quickly. In this case, with the scene being fluent and not knowing if we had suspects on the loose, I opted to go ahead and do that. And it took a minute for them to get caught up as busy as they were, but they were able to get on the phone with me and play the uh, 911 call for me. So were you able to hear the 911 call? I was. And are you listening to that, that 911 call, uh, both for content but also critically and, and trying to examine the things that are said? Oh, absolutely. We're listening for noises in the background, exactly what is said versus what we see, so forth. So with that awareness of everything that was said on the 911 call, do you then take that information and apply it to the scene? Yes, sir. And are you applying that information to try to see if it checks out, to see if things are consistent with what you heard on the 911 call? Yes, sir. And on the 911 call, did you did did Mr. Murdoch indicate that he had tried to uh, examine the bodies or, or check their pulses? 
yes, I believe dispatch stated, do not touch if you haven't. And Mr. Murdoch replied that he had touched them, checking them. To check and see if they're breathing? And, and which would be expected. Absolutely. Upon examination, Mr. Murdoch, did you have a chance to look at his hands? I, again, I did talk to him, yes, sir. Did you have a chance to look at his shirt? I did. And did you see any indication that there was any blood on, on any part of his body? No, sir. Not, again, just physically with my observations, no microscope there. I did not see any blood anywhere. And in your experience with viewing Paul's body, had you physically touched Paul, would there have been blood left on your hand? Dick Harpudlian's objection is that the prosecutor is asking the witness to speculate as to whether there would have been blood on his hands. Judge Clifton Newman invites a response to the objection from Prosecutor Fernandez. Response. Physically saw the body, and he cannot testify to the locations that would be touched and whether it would transfer. Does he know what location he touched? I'll, I'll ask a few more questions. Yes, sir. Fernandez's next set of questions are meant to lay a foundation for his inquiry into the transfer of blood at the crime scene. Captain going back to your experience in um, life-saving procedures, is there are there common areas that someone might touch to check the pulse if they were indicating their check breathing? Objection, Your Honor. The question is, where did Mr. Murdoch touch the body for a pulse? Was it the neck? Objection. Overruled. The prosecutor is asking the question. Go ahead. Thank you, If they've indicated they're checking for breathing, are there common areas that someone might check? Uh, I believe the most common is uh, the neck and the wrist that you see that, you know, people with limited training would probably use. I'm sure there are others for, with medical training. So the neck and the wrist. And please tell me where Paul's wrists were located when you discovered his body. They're up underneath his body. And was Paul's neck accessible? If his wrists were underneath his body, was, was his neck accessible? I think you can get the portions of his neck. I don't know that you'd be able to get underneath. I mean, he's face down, and I didn't try to get a pulse, but where I know that you would check would be difficult without manipulating the body in some fashion, I guess. And if you had to manipulate the body, and if you were going to try to check his pulse via wrist or neck, what you saw that night, would your hands be bloody? If I had attempted, they would have been, yes. I'm going to ask you another investigative point that you observed. Did, did Mr. Murdoch on the 911 call indicate he was going to retrieve a firearm? Yes, sir. And that actually came out while I was en route as a caution from the dispatcher, but it was also present on the call when I monitored the call. I had to listen to the 911 tape. What was the cue that you were fixated on as it relates to the retrieval of the firearm? What, what is going through your head at that point? Well, that he's scared. I mean, that he believes there may be somebody there that possibly whoever he believes hurt them may come back and hurt him. That's your estimation, right? That's what you're thinking? Was and that's what I was thinking, yeah. I mean, and that's what I believe pretty much anybody would think if he was there present with them and got spooked. And because I believe the, the verbiage on the 911 is... He states, I'm going to get a, a gun that I don't feel safe. And dispatch tries to tell him, we would rather you not. And, and he states again that I, I'm not going to show it to the officers. I'm not going to hurt anybody. I'll put it away, but I feel unsafe. So I understand that. All right. Listen to the 911 call critically. What then did you observe towards the end after retrieving a, a, a firearm that, that you would cue on to in your investigative uh, process? Knowing that he had went and got the gun, knowing that he said he stated he was unsafe and that he went and got the firearm there. When he came back, as soon as he got back to the scene, the only thing I believe that was odd from that point was that he wanted to separate the call or cancel the call to call family prior to anyone's arrival. It was the only thing that just 
struck me as odd. Again, it's just a point of investigation. Up to that point in the phone call, he had asked repeatedly, where are they? Are y'all coming? Are y'all coming? Are y'all coming? I'm not safe. I'm going to go get a gun. And then when he got back to the scene, are y'all here yet? How far out are they? And then it was, I need to call my family. And the phone disconnected. And when we refer to the scene, the scene is obviously, is that does that uncover part of what was you know, fenced off with crime scene tape? Does that, you know, when referring to a scene? That would have been the primary scene, yes, sir. But in your mind, what, what does the scene also entail? What other things? Well, I mean, the only thing that the phone could potentially extend that scene, the phone calls, excuse me, could potentially extend that scene as far as entering a crime scene and not being able to introduce evidence or ex exiting a crime scene without being able to take away evidence. And by his own admission, he left the scene, went to his house and got a gun. Potentially that could make the house an extension of the crime scene. Because that's what he indicated on the phone call. And that's what he indicated. Is Mr. Murdoch considered part of that scene? The scene. Of course. Uh, he, he's inside that area when we arrive and I mean, he would be factored into everything. And then, would that justify or explain why you might pay particular attention to him? Sure. I mean, we would anybody that's How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Prosecutor David Fernandez next seeks to distinguish the images that were captured by the body cameras worn by Sergeant Daniel Green and by Corporal Chad McDowell at the Murdoch crime scene and the observations that Captain Chapman made personally on the night of the homicides. You've had a chance to review the body-worn camera from both Deputy Green and uh, McDowell, correct? Yes, sir. After those videos ceased uh, recording because the crime scene had been secured, did you have an opportunity then to continue your investigation and continue your line of work? We did. And those uh, these activities would not have been captured on the video because it had been shut off. That That's correct. correct. Did you have an opportunity to physically observe, meaning watch Mr. Murdoch while your deputies and your officers were performing their tasks? I did. What were a couple of the things that you noticed that stuck out to you when uh, physically observing Mr. Murdoch and how he was either behaving or what he was doing? Again, I mean, he was emotional. Distress on his face. I didn't see him cry. Not everyone cries. I don't have an issue with that. There were times that when we got to certain places or, or asked certain questions that you could see a slight demeanor change or body language shift. And, you know, I took note of that. But again, as, just as a point of investigation, but... He remained at the scene. He wasn't forced to say he was cooperative, but he did. You know, there were times that you could see reaction to different things. Do you ever notice him tracking your your movements or your officers' movements? I know. When I was there when I ordered Detective Barnado to take a GSR kit and explain that how the kit worked and why we were taking it. And he was very cooperative with giving the kit. 
and we really didn't have an issue there. Later, was looking at some, I wouldn't call them tire tracks, I'd call them tire impression, because there's no dirt there, it's just grass, but we noticed there was quite a bit of tire impressions that ran around the back side of the hangar. And we'll get to the tire tracks in a second. You mentioned the term just, just a second ago called GSR. Yes, sir. Um, if you wouldn't mind, could you explain to us just sure. what that I apologize is? for that. So a gunshot residue kit is just a kit. We use specific kits provided by SLED. SLED is an acronym that stands for South Carolina's State Law Enforcement Division. Uh, because the, the kits were then sent off for testing, but it's meant to test for the presence of gunshot residue. They're uh, very non-invasive. They have little ampules. You open up a sterile kit, put a set of gloves on, open the kit up, and you'll dab one of the sterile uh, collectors around on the front and back of the hand of an individual, package those up, tape it off, seal it, date it, time it, case number, and then that's eventually sent off the sled. We were asked, I spoke earlier and said the only thing that my detectives physically collected prior to sled's crime scene's arrival was that GSR kit. It was done by us because there is a time limit on those. You can't always wait. I know everybody sometimes thinks it's, well, why don't we just wait and do all this tomorrow, but GSR has a six-hour limit on it, so we had to collect that that night, and we we did so, and that's what I was referring to when I say GSR, the Gunshot Residue Test Kit. And uh, Captain Chapman, related to the, the GSR retrieval, I know you mentioned that, that time limit, the expiring time limit. Does it, that time limit refer to humans or just things in general, objects? That refers to when we collect a GSR sample from an individual. That is our restriction from the SLED lab is that it has to be collected within six hours of the estimated time of firing the weapon. And again, that kits, I mean, it's just as much uh, for any type of exculpatory as it is conviction. And we use it a lot of times to exonerate someone as much as we would to convict. Going back to Mr. Murdoch's observations that you had, did he appear to fixate on one body or the other that were there? Especially watching the camera footage, I didn't notice quite as much in person, but later scrutinizing the body cam footage, there's, that does, he does appear to fixate more on his son than his wife, but that's in that limited amount of body cam footage that I have. Right, you mentioned before the tire tracks that you observed. Yes, sir, or tire impressions. Tire impressions. Yes, okay. Set the scene for us, if you would, sure. please. Um, describing the grass, and we've heard a lot about, you know, there's rain, but moisture. Describe the, the scene, if you would, on, on that grass. So if you come into the property and you go down the dirt road with Paul on your left, as you see in the picture before you all, that gravel or dirt road between the kennels and the, what's referred to as the airport or the airplane hangar, eventually ends in grass, a large grass area that separates that hangar from a another shed. And in that area is where Mr. Murdoch's Suburban was parked with the flashers and the headlights, and the headlights were pointed towards Paul's body. But that entire area there is grass as opposed to the dirt or gravel lane between the two structures. And there's some very obvious, at that time, impressions in the grass, but they're not tracks like you think of that you, we could cast a track out of dirt, but you can't cast an impression that's in laid over wet grass from the dew. I mean, you're not going to be able to do anything with that other than to document it. And I did notice them, and I actually asked Mr. Murdoch to, if he could tell me, because I didn't was unaware of the body cam footage at the time, could you tell me what direction you came from? And he told me that he pointed and said he had come from the residence and pulled up here, turned around and went back the same route, confirming that the tracks around his vehicle, the Suburban, were his. 
And he said, there should be two sets. From where I arrived the first time, left and went my, got the gun and came back. And I asked about the other sets that you could see. And there was one in particular that appeared to come close to Maggie's body, possibly. You had to have the light just right. And it just happened to be that I noticed it looking at the, the ground in front of Mr. Murdoch's vehicle because the lights were shining on Paul that you could see that. So the tire tracks, did you and uh, Detective Rutland spend some time trying to or attempting to identify where those tracks could have come from? We did try to follow them. One thing that started to bother me was that we didn't have a vehicle. We are trying to figure out how Maggie and Paul got to the kennels. It's a pretty substantial distance from the residence to the kennels property, you know, and I don't know an exact, but I'm guessing you know, probably a thousand yards from the kennels to the house. And it's 10 o'clock at night, so I, w- I don't know what time they got there, but pretty long walk, especially if you're planning on walking back in the dark. And did they drive a vehicle? Did they drive you know, a four-wheeler or a UTV or whatever, a golf cart? But we see Mr. Murdoch's vehicle because he left it as instructed where it was. But we were trying to determine if any of these other tracks lined up with the position of any other vehicles that were on the property. There was a UTV with a flat tire. There was another half-ton pickup in the shed across the grass portion from the hangar. I was thinking maybe those tracks would line up or the impressions that were in the grass would line up with that vehicle. Did they appear to line up with they did not. vehicles? They did not. After a brief recess in the proceedings, Prosecutor Fernandez introduces into evidence two drone videos, operated and recorded by Captain Chapman, as well as several still frames from the drone footage. Captain Chapman, as we were discussing earlier, um, you did record, describe the process of uh, what you did with the drones and uh, why you surveilled the area. Took pictures with our drone just to give an overall. Some of the agents have different job descriptions that day. In order to have something as a reference point to go back and work with later, we took the department issued drone and took a couple of aerial videos so that we could use them for reference later. If you would please step down. Sure. And if you could identify for the jurors as videos played what we're what we're actually looking at. The drone footage shows a large white structure with trees behind it and to its right. A driveway runs to the left from the structure and after a few hundred yards it is intersected by another driveway. As the drone camera pans to the left, we see that the intersecting driveway runs from frame right to frame left and ends in a grassy area to the right of which are the dog kennels and airplane hangar shelter where Paul and Maggie Murdoch's bodies were discovered. Captain Chapman describes what the jury sees in the video. In the end, currently, what we see is the uh, main house in the Murdoch and residence. And, uh, and then, the trees would be the main driveway that comes out. If you could identify that on the video, the, the driveway that you're referring to. So this would be the main structure and the main driveway that comes out from it with the trees. Ladies and gentlemen, the main structure, or residential structure, the main driveway away from it with the trees. All right, and now looking down the road a bit, this road that veers to the left or turns left, what is that road? So that would have been the route that was described by Mr. Murdoch as how he left his residence and came to the dog kennels, coming up the road with the planted trees, making a left here, ladies and gentlemen, there. And if you play the video a little farther, that road ends at the incident location with the dog kennels. And if you would, please describe for us what we're actually looking at with this dog kennel area, um, identifying the structures uh, in the entry point mailbox area. Absolutely. So this would be the area coming from the main residence. When we arrived on scene that night, or when at least when I arrived, 
right here, positioned with the headlights facing down this way, would have been Mr. Murdoch's vehicle. On the right of the area where Captain Chapman said Alex Murdoch's vehicle was located, we see the dog kennel structure that appears to be about 10 feet wide and about 40 feet long. On the left of the vehicle location is a long red peak-roofed building that is laid out perpendicular to the kennels and runs about 20 feet wide and about 80 or 90 feet long. This is the building we've heard referred to as the airplane hangar. You keep hearing reference of the airplane hangar or the main shed. That would have been the large structure here. The dog kennels are the smaller one you see in the background and one perpendicular and the driveway goes out to the road. So again, the roadway coming from the main residence. Here you have what's been referred to as the hangar. Mr. Murdoch's vehicle was parked in this general area here with the headlight shining down within the dog kennels. We also see a large grass area between where the driveway from the residence ends and where the driveway between the kennels and the airplane hangar begins. To the left of that grass area running parallel to the airplane hangar, we see another structure. Captain Chapman next references all of these areas in his testimony. This is the large grass area that we were referring to when we are talking about the tire impressions in the dune. And this is a separate structure that sits off to the and where would the uh, entry point for the uh, Moselle Road be on this uh, distill shot? Following straight down between the hangar and the dog kills, going all the way through the tree line, the Moselle Road entrance would be back here. Captain Chapman indicates a driveway that runs from left to right through trees away behind the end of the kennel structure. Prosecutor Fernandez puts up another drone image from the reverse angle of all of these structures and roads. Please tell us what we're looking at from this perspective right now. So this would be the back portion of the airplane hangar, the driveway, the vehicles at the bottom of the screen. This driveway goes back around and connects back to Moselle Road. And this is this the hangar that you were referencing? This is the airplane hangar as we've been referring to it. What is this structure on the top side of this image in the far back? Prosecutor Fernandez is referencing the third structure we mentioned earlier that stands off to the side of the grassy field at the end of the driveway from the residence. I believe that was a uh, cleaning for a processing shed for animals. If you were going to process a deer that you killed and had like a walk-in freezer, sinks, a uh, floor with drain in it. All right. Describe to us what we're, what we're looking at from this perspective, if you would. So if you came in the Moselle entrance, which was the entrance that we were dispatched to, the 4147, uh, and you turned by the mailbox off of Moselle Road and you came in the dirt driveway, you would be coming up between the two structures. You have your airplane hangar on your right with the red tin roof, the dog kennel on your left. That was the vehicle that Mr. Murdoch, he said he was driving when I arrived on scene. At the time, the flashers were flat. I believe they actually still are in the drone video. The hazard lights are on all the way back from where dispatch initially advised him to cut them on for arrival. The large shed in the background out there is just a, simply another tractor shed. Would you identify where uh, the body of Paul Murdahl was, was located when you arrived on yes, this picture? So the dog kennels on the left of your screen, ladies and gentlemen, if you were to look towards the end of that structure, uh, right where the gravel and the roof line are, and then step back approximately five, six feet, that would have been the location of Paul's body. Where would Maggie's body have been located? And Maggie's body would have been just beyond the roof line of the red airplane hangar uh, on the side closest to the Suburban. The trajectory of uh, the vehicle that Mr. Murdahl was operating and actually left parked there, um, would his headlights have, where would his headlights have been directed to? As it sits now, which I believe is the same it was when I arrived on scene, the headlights were pointed on 
poles plotting. And this structure uh, just past the white roof, which is identified as the kennels. Um, what's that that run structure there? I believe that was a like a chicken coop or a chicken pen. As mentioned before, when we were talking about the tire tracks uh, that you noticed in the dew of the grass, uh, that you were trying to identify the location of those tracks. As part of your investigation in conjunction with uh, Detective Rutland, did you identify this uh, black truck that we see pictured here? We did. Uh, did any of the tracks line up to that black truck? No, sir. That's what got us back to that location looking at the tire impressions was that we were trying to determine if that was the vehicle we believed that Paul may have driven to the, the uh, kennels. And did you check the truck to see if it was physically warm to the touch? or had it, it was not. Also here, um, the uh, kennel run, I think you already identified, is that the structure with the white roof? Yes, sir. The, the silverish white roof in the background yes, on this sir. image? And uh, the feed room located where Paul uh, actually was sort of straddled, where would that feed room be in this image? If you look at the right uh, corner of that building, and you can see the white frame door just above the red roof, that would be the area of the feed room. Prosecutor Fernandez asks Captain Chapman to stand and point to the areas where Paul and Maggie's bodies were found. The witness points to the area near the feed room amid the kennels for Paul's location and an area near the airplane hangar shelter for Maggie's. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join our next installment as we continue our look at the testimony of Colleton County Sheriff's Captain Jason Chapman, the senior officer who responded to the scene of the Murdoch murders. Also, check out the new crime story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.